All right, this morning we're in Exodus, Exodus 3, 1 through 6. The word of God says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, we thank you for you. We thank you for your holiness. Uh, we thank you for your, for your word, which is sacred. Um, it's not, not holy in the same way you're holy, but the way you stand above all your creation is holy. Your word stands above all of the writings <clears throat> as inspired by you, the only word inspired by you, inerrant, the only word that's inerrant. I pray that we would recognize that, that we would receive it as such, that we would have the wisdom that comes from you and the the wisdom that comes from your spirit to recognize that and that we would bow before it and seek for your will only in your word as transmitted to, you, to us by you. Amen. All right, well, this cold air, we should hopefully keep everyone awake and alert as we go through this morning. As we've gone through the series on the attributes of God, we've labored carefully in this series, to not pit one attribute of God against another. That is, to not rank one above the other in the sense of you pick your favorite, and that's the one who you kind of, that's sort of how you narrow in on who God is and how he interacts with us, and someone may pick another one. That's often done, but in order to, to labor against that, we talked about the term, the simplicity of God, that God is simple. By that we mean that he's not made up of parts, of components. He does not ebb and flow between one attribute and another, but he is all of his attributes in their perfections, infinitely, eternally, immutably, all of his attributes at all times, so that in his justice he is perfectly merciful, and in his mercy he is perfectly infinite and in his infinity he is perfectly holy and so on as it goes through God is all of those things at all times he does not ebb and flow that said scripture does turn our gaze more often to certain attributes of God than others it does take the gaze of the Christian and, and stick it on certain attributes of God again and again and again because these are going to be necessarily vital for us to orient us and to give us a right view of God and in light of that a right view of ourselves, a right view of, of the church, how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. And so while they may not be more important, they are given more time, more consequence. And so we as a church give them more time. Central among these attributes is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. There is only one attribute that is being declared around the throne day and night. Holy, holy, holy. 
It is not love, love, love. It is not mercy, mercy, mercy. While that may not be inappropriate, the one attribute declared again and again is holy, holy, holy. The one attribute raised to that superlative degree. God has created the angels that they might stand beside him and in continual voice raise that anthem. He has engaged his saints who right now around the throne with full energy and conviction and joy engage in the anthem. Holy, holy, holy. More than any other attribute, God in heaven is identified as holy. In fact, as Jim even alluded to in his prayer, those things that represent our holy God, those things associated with God, are again given that same terminology. You think he has sent his son, his holy son. He has left us his spirit, the Holy Spirit. Together they are known as the Holy Trinity. He has given us his word. It is his holy word where he dwells. It's his holy temple, that holy mount. We are waiting to enter into that holy land, that holy city that he has prepared for us. And so we see at the very center of who God is and how we should approach him and who we are in relation to him is his holiness. So let's define holiness. Often we think of holiness as a synonym maybe for moral purity. And this isn't necessarily wrong, but it's a bit misleading or incomplete. There is a a primary and then a secondary definition to holiness. Many of you probably know this. The secondary definition is that personal righteousness or purity. As it relates to God, it is a holiness that is totally and, and utterly untainted. A purity that is without blemish or spot. It is the moral perfections of God. And this is an absolutely true and an absolutely vital aspect to the holiness of God. We see this part of God's holiness revealed to us in the moral law. We see it implanted in our hearts in that moral law that he plants within every man that testifies to God's glory and God's holiness and his speaking through our conscience more explicitly in his written word we see the moral perfections of God but but really the weight of that moral perfections rests within the primary definition of God's holiness the primary definition is this again you've maybe heard it is that it's separate set apart holy other w-h-o L-O-Y, holy other. That God is set apart. He is unique. He is holy other. He is beyond comprehension. That is, he is wholly separate from his creation. There is creator and there is creation. He is superior on every level. He is on a different level. He stands behind all grandeur and all glory and all beauty. His holiness stands behind it. And all grandeur and glory and beauty that we would see point to his holiness. He is high. He is lifted up. He is transcendent and supreme. This is what we speak about with God's holiness. He is absolutely unique and other and transcendent and unapproachable and majestic. 
He is not like his creation, and he is not to be brought down to be thought of like his creation. You could say that holiness, the holiness of God is really his godness. And his position is the great I am, the sovereign one. Holiness of God describes then him in that position, in his relationship to us as his creature. The holiness of God should engender worship, should engender terror, should engender awe. It is more valuable than anything It should be what we seek, what we worship, and yet it is true. We approach it often so lackadaisically, so nonchalantly, the holiness of God as if this is just something, you know, we can take it or leave it. And yet for the unregenerate, the unrepentant, the holiness of God is sheer terror. We've emphasized this before, but a holy God is not a safe domesticated God who seeks your happiness first, makes sure he'll never step on your toes, and comes across as totally accepting to all people. That's not the holy God that's presented to us in Scripture. That's not the holy God that demands our allegiance and our worship. God's holiness means that God's glory burns brightly. And all see it. He's the very standard of righteousness and purity, the source of all sanctification. An example, anytime you make an example or an illustration for God, it it has major holes in it and it's lacking somewhere. So this isn't perfect. But you can think of it somewhat as the sunshine. That sun in in the heavens with the the source of, of life and energy and beauty on this planet coming from the sun. It burns brightly And we desire it. We need it. We need it for life. We need it uh, for existence. We need it for our own joy and all this Pittsburgh dark day depression, right? You you need the sun to get out and to feel its warmth. Even though it's 93 million miles away so far, we need that. The closer you get, the more intense it feels. Quickly, when you come to the sun and it's fully unveiled and you get just fractions closer than we are now, it becomes almost unbearable. It it becomes somewhat terrible. We get too close and we cannot exist. We cannot stand in the presence of that heat and that fury. It says that on the sun there's a roaring sound of just the, the energy and the heat that roars from the sun. And it's a good way to think about the paradox of God's holiness that we need that for life. We need that for beauty. We, we need that to sort of rapture our souls and we want to see it and draw, be drawn closer to it. And yet there is a sense of, of terror and unapproachability to it as well. A few verses <clears throat> that just speak to this idea of holiness 1 Samuel 2.2, if you want to jot them down, we're not going to spend a lot of time in them, but 1 Samuel 2.2, there is no one holy like the Lord, there is none beside thee. Psalm 22.3, you are holy, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Hosea 11.9, I am God and not man, 
the Holy One in your midst. Isaiah 40 in verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. He is incomparable. It really should more than occasionally grasp our souls that when we gather together and worship, when we are in other places confronted with the holiness of God, it should not be approached with a bored yawn, with an apathetic spirit, with some sort of nonchalantness that we come before the holiness of God. It should quickly shake us out of apathy, shake the pride away from us. I often describe our church this way and my ministry in it, and I pray that it can be somewhat true. (laughs) But that we don't take ourselves that seriously, but we take our God and what we do seriously. And by that I mean you look and often in churches and in our own hearts it can quickly get inverted where you see a a leadership you see something and it's all about sort of this personality going forward I'm trying to curate this certain look and this aesthetic and and a certain sound and the, the whole thing is produced and it's it's just this sort of taking myself very seriously I build a social media to to advance that self But then when it comes to God's word and what he calls us to do, well, we can kind of take it or leave it. We'll just pick the message that, you know, advances ourselves. And and we can take that part not seriously at all. Being confronted with the holiness of God should invert that. Where we we have an idea that our pride is going to be wrecked and that we'll be humble before a holy God. That when we think of a liturgy and approaching God in worship, it's not just, you know, we just need to think of something to do, but the God does call us into his presence, and he calls us to come with humble spirits, with praise, with thanksgiving, with hands raised high, with heads bowed low. He calls us into his presence in that way. And when we come into his presence, we should be struck with our own sin and our own unworthiness, and it's appropriate then that we confess that before our God. That we make much of Him, that we offer words of praise and thanksgiving to Him. We should not approach God with a nonchalant spirit. You look at Exodus 3. We've spent enough time setting the context of Exodus 3. I don't know what is in this building, but I've got to get used to talking in here. Moses, we've already set the context, he's shepherding his sheep, shepherding his flock in Midian for his father-in-law. He's a murderer on the run, now he's just been living, doing this job for a while, and he's out in Midian, and he is tending the flock, and he comes upon that bush that that is on fire, but not being consumed, obviously it catches his attention. God speaks to him out of the burning bush, and he tells Moses... Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground right now. Moses covers his face, turns away. He is filled with fear. 
confronted with the holiness of God, the, the, the presence of God, two things happen that we see with Moses. One, when it talks about feet or shoes in Scripture, it's often referring to the creatureliness of a person. They are bound to this earth as a creature, and the, the feet represent that. And often with it, too, it's sort of the, the uncleanness, the impurity. And you'll see it throughout Scripture of the washing of feet and the taking off of the shoes and, and sandals. He, he recognizes immediately there is impurity, there is uncleanness about him in the presence of God. Take off your shoes, you're in, you're in holy ground. There's a humility that comes and there is an awe and a fear and a turning away <clears throat> to look at the holiness, the brightness of God shining. What makes the ground holy? It's not some special dirt in Midian, right? Moses, no doubt, had wandered through that area countless times. He'd walked in those patches of, of land. But what made it holy, what made it consecrated, what made it set apart was the presence of God with it. God touches, consecrates, or sets it apart as holy. You heard uh, Jim it's like he read my notes in his prayer. The holiness of God's word. What makes this holy? It's not the, the special leather and paper, although that's very nice leather. It's that God has breathed it. That's what makes it holy. What makes us holy gathered here today? That we're innately better than someone else? That, that we had that special sauce that God was really looking for? No, is that, that he has called us out and set us apart. He has consecrated us. That's why he looks at his church and says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are set apart. You are consecrated. What he touches, what he breathes, what he sets apart is holy. We talk about holy communion, not because it's some sort of magical bread and, and, and magical wine. It's not that there, there's something in there that we magically do, but God has set it apart. He consecrated it. That's what he gave us was the bread and the wine. That's what he tells us in John. When you eat it, you're eating his body figuratively. That you are being nourished and strengthened by it. That's why it's not like a silly laughing matter over COVID when people are at home eating Doritos and chocolate milk and saying it's their communion. What God consecrates and sets apart is holy and to be treated as such. His holy word, his holy church, his holy table. We know that God is present everywhere. And so it's not that just coming into this building somehow is the only time that you're ever in the presence of God. And we also know that from John 4, that, that God is there fighting over where the temple should be between the Israelites and the, the Samaritans, and, and where's the rightful place for worship, and he says it doesn't matter. True worshipers of God worship in spirit and in truth. There's nothing holy about this building. It's no holier than Penn Avenue with its dirty, torn up yellow carpet and bad HVAC system. <clears throat> 
But there is something when God causes people to gather that he is in their midst. Where two or three are gathered, he is in their midst. When he speaks to his church in Revelation, he says, I am giving you that flame, that light for you to care for. You are the candlestick. And Jesus Christ walks in the midst of his candlestick. That you're stepping, as it were, from the secular into the sacred. From the the common into the uncommon. And when you're gathered, there is a presence of the Lord uniquely that he promises. He tells us that in Revelation. And so what we are are doing here is we are, as a holy nation, taking the holy word and worshiping a holy God. And it shouldn't just be a laughable, nonchalant matter, but it is weighty and it is beautiful and it is glorious. Anytime you're going to talk about the holiness of God and seeing his holiness and his presence, you need to go to Isaiah 6. If you want to flip over there. Isaiah 6. Throughout redemptive history, God has veiled his presence, veiled his, his holiness and his glory, but yet... He's always made it available in some ways. The cloud and the fire, the Ark of the Covenant in his temple in the holies of holies. There's always been access to the presence of God, but it has been veiled. But occasionally, at really significant times throughout redemptive history, God pulls back that veil into heaven a little bit. He pulls back that veil and gives a glimpse of the holiness of God. Right before he sets someone on mission. Right before an important moment in redemptive history. And it's in those moments, I think, that we can get a glimpse that should shape our view and excite our souls for the holiness of God. Isaiah chapter 6 begins, In the year that King Uzziah died. If you remember your Old Testament history, King Uzziah was one of the few good kings of Judah. He was called to the throne at the age of 16. And he was actually a really wise and good king even at the age of 16. You think what you were doing at the age of 16. He was the king. And he brought a lot of of economical success. He brought a lot of, of health for over half a century. For over 50 years he ruled as king. There was all kinds of spiritual reform that took place in Judah during those years. And we see in 2 Chronicles 26, I think it is, that, that he grew in that way because he came under the ministry of the prophet Nehemiah and he listened to Nehemiah and he grew with fear to fear in the Lord that he sought to honor the Lord and so he labors and he grows in this way but after 50 some years he begins to become prideful in his own heart he starts to think the success is based upon him and his own uh, own power and might things that he has accomplished And so he decides, I'm going to worship God how I want to worship God. Instead of working through the priests as they were told to do, he decides, I'm going to enter the temple. I'm going to enter into the holy place and I'll bring fire and I'll bring incense and I'll offer praise, whatever he's trying to do to the Lord. And as he's heading to the temple, the the chief priest, Azariah, steps up and says, no, no, no. This will not honor a holy God. You're coming into holy ground. You can't approach this way. 
Uzziah blows him off, filled with pride. He walks in, he lights that incense, immediately he's struck with leprosy. He's confined to his home at that point, ruling for some time from his home, never to enter the temple again. He dies, I think, within the year from leprosy. So you have this violation, and you have this violation of God's holiness and this punishment, and there's also kind of this unsettled unrest. This is the best king we've had for a really long time, and now the throne is vacant. And that lays at the backdrop that in the year that King Uzziah died, you have Isaiah having a vision. It says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There's a, a couple different ways people understand this vision, not that it matters that much, either that he was in the temple and going to the temple he had a vision, or that it's more that he had a vision and God opened up the curtain into, uh, into a, a refracted view of heaven itself. I tend to think it's that. And Isaiah has this vision he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne. You'll notice that first Lord is a capital L, little o, little r, little d. As you continue through this text, the next two or three times, the Lord is all capitalized. What's taking place there is that <clears throat> the translators are telling us, even though this word translates the same way for us, there's actually two different names, two different words being used here. The Lord, when it starts with a capital and then the rest is lowercase, that is referring to Lord as in master or sovereign one, Adonai. Adonai is the word. And so it is referring to the Lord as the sovereign or the master or the king. When Lord is completely capitalized, all of them, it's, it's more of the, the proper name for our God, Yahweh. I am. The great I am. I am in that sense both ontologically, that he is the essence of all being, he was, he is, he is to come, and I am in sense covenantally, that I am the one who made that covenant, I am the one who will fulfill that covenant, and it will be upon my grounds. I will never leave you or forsake you, I am. So you have both that covenantal and ontological force coming in that name. <clears throat> And so it begins, I see the king, I see the sovereign one, I see the master sitting upon his throne. And that king is Yahweh, the great I am. It's interesting, it was a rabbit trail, I think it's worth the rabbit trail. You see that a couple times in the text. You see it in Psalm 8. As the psalmist would cry out, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the, the earth. It's O Lord... Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai. Oh God, my Adonai. Oh, the great I am, my sovereign master and king. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament, or at least alluded to psalm in the Old Testament, is Psalm 110. <clears throat> it can be a little confusing when you read it. It's, it's again, <clears throat> this view of heaven. And it says, the Lord said to my Lord, is how it opens. And again, what it is saying is you have the Lord, all caps, you have Yahweh speaking to the Lord in the third person, 
So it's Yahweh said to Adonai. It's a messianic psalm. You have Yahweh, God the Father, speaking to the Son, the pre-incarnate Son. The Lord said to my Lord. He is the king. He is the master. That is the name when you come to the New Testament. When Jesus Christ is given a name which is exalted above every other name, it's Adonai. The king, the master, the sovereign one. And so he speaks then in this way, and there seems to be, maybe the vision here would be a Christophany, that pre-incarnate vision of Christ. So as he addresses him, he immediately says, I see Adonai, I see him seated on the throne, high and lifted up. It becomes a royal scene. He is majestic. He is reigning from the throne. The sovereign king of kings, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What marked the power, the glory of a, of a leader back then would be, well even today I guess maybe, would be sort of just the, the expense, the beauty of their robes. And the longer the train, the more powerful they would be. No one had a longer train than the king. Perhaps you saw it with the Queen of England dying recently. They showed a lot of videos from, or, you know, clips from earlier in her life. And they showed her wedding at Westminster Abbey. There's like four or five people walking behind her carrying her train as she walks down. That long train. And here the imagery is that that God in his majestic transcendence, that robe envelops It fills the entire temple. He is the high, the exalted one. And above him stood the seraphim. The seraphim, literally the burning ones. The ones who God created and commissioned to dwell close to his presence day and night, ministering to his needs. And it describes these seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Again, we're reminded that, yes, angels are different than us, but they're still creatures compared to the Creator. Just as Moses covered his face, so the angels, the seraphim, they, they were, God created them for the task at hand, and part of it was dwelling in his presence and in the brightness of his glory. They cover their face. And with two, he covered his feet. Again, speaking to that creaturely distinction between even the angels and God. Just as Moses kicked off his sandals, the angels cover their feet. In light of God's purity, that they are not holy like God. And with two, he flew, ready to hear God's commission, to hear God's command, and to go and do the bidding of God. And here are the seraphim, and one calls to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. One chants it, one sings it and chants it to the other back and forth. In Hebraism, Hebrew, when they are looking to emphasize something, one of the techniques they use is that repetition. To do it three times is to put something in the superlative. It would be not exactly, but it would be something like holy, holier, holiest. 
You see Jesus uses sometimes as he'll repeat things twice to emphasize it. Verily, verily, or truly, truly. Amen, amen <clears throat> and amen. And he's saying this is important. You need to listen. But to repeat it three times is to elevate it to the superlative. It's that you're just trying to get your point across. So you keep repeating it. He's set apart, holy. Well, he's holy, holy. I mean, he is altogether unique and different and to be worshipped. That still doesn't do it. Holy, holy, holy. <laughs> it is beyond comprehension. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We see in Revelation 4, as John receives that vision on the Isle of Patmos, he, he, he has this vision, he describes his Lord, he writes the letters to the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3, then in chapter 4 he has that vision where he's drawn up. And again, the angels and now the saints, they join with it day and night surrounding their God, surrounding the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is who our God is. This orients how we think about Him, how we understand ourselves in light of Him. Verse 4 of Isaiah 6, and the foundations of the threshold shook, filled with smoke as the voice calls. And Isaiah's response is what you would think it would be. <laughs> and he says, Woe is me. That woe is almost a, pronouncing a woe or a curse on himself. As I see the holiness, as I see the holy, holy, holy God, woe is me. Cursed am I. I cannot exist in this presence. For I am lost. Maybe your translation says undone. Whatever it is, it has shaken him to his core. Every way he thought of himself before has been disoriented. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to think. Because this holy God has shaken me to my core. He continues, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He recognizes his sinfulness, his lowliness. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, <clears throat> the Lord of hosts, the great I Am, who rules angel armies. The church is always at its best and always at its healthiest when it has a good sense of the holiness of God. In our own lives, we are thinking most clearly, we are most unafraid of man, we are most ready to be sent on mission for God, we are most captured by his beauty, when we have the best view, the best glimpse, the most clarity in our understanding of the holiness of God. You see, we all live in this predicament that what we need for life, 
what we need to be God's people, what we know, need to know true joy and true happiness is to dwell in the presence of a holy God. And at the same time, the one thing that will immediately consume us, the one thing that we cannot do and exist is to dwell in the presence of a holy God. Throughout redemptive history, God gave just glimpses of it. I mean, Moses caught just a backward glimpse of the reflected, refracted glory of God. Days later, his face still shone so brightly that others couldn't look at him. It's what we need, but it's what we can't have. Enter Jesus Christ. This is why our boast is the gospel and the gospel alone. Every piece of the gospel establishes and addresses how man can dwell with a holy God. That, that God would take on flesh, become incarnate, enter time and space. Right there, God dwelling among man. God making known, being made known through an incarnate Christ. That we would know his glory, glory is of the only begotten. And yet still, the presence of God is veiled within that temple. Then the holy place, and in that, the holy of holies, and that curtain separating the two so that you still can't get at it, really. It's a veiled presence. You remember what happens as Jesus Christ hangs on that cross? As the wrath of God is poured out on the Son, the curtain is ripped in half from top to bottom. Access to God is won by Jesus Christ into the presence of the Holy One. Right now, we enjoy that presence of God through the intercession of the Son, the mediation of the Son. And yet, still in this age, there's a veiled sense of it. Often we don't think of the resurrection in this way. We, we think of it in God defeating death. But even when we're redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth, God doesn't cease to be creator and us creature. It's not that we reach the same plane as God all of a sudden. And that we're holy like he is holy. In fact, we can't look on his eye, look upon him unless we have glorified, redeemed eyes. We cannot approach him unless we have the glorified feet to approach him. Jesus Christ taking on flesh, truly dying, and being raised with a glorified body. That's why you see that in the, the New Testament, that, that testimony to the glorified, resurrected body. He becomes the first fruits. That we will follow in that resurrection, and just like he went to heaven <clears throat> and can now stand before the face of God Almighty, we'll enjoy the glorified eyes, the, the glorified feet to be able to dwell in the presence of God the new heavens and the new earth join in that song holy 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 is the lord god almighty 
I was at a funeral yesterday evening. A neighbor whose wife passed away. It was a, a Russian Orthodox. <clears throat> uh, just a simple little service they did. At one point, the the priest, as he's leading some prayers, says, you know, turns and kind of challenges everyone that Sue Ellen is in the kingdom of God. If you would like to be in the kingdom of God with her, it all comes down to this. What are your priorities? I thought, wow. Having the right priorities doesn't break down the wall that allows you into the presence of holiness. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why we proclaim it. That's why we boast in it. That's why we preach the gospel each and every week and declare it. We pray that God gives us that view of God's holiness that we need to be a holy nation, to be a healthy church family, to be serious about our Christian walk and rejoice in Jesus Christ that we can enter into that presence of the King and know grace and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your work on our behalf. <clears throat> you are kind and gracious to us. Lord, we thank you that you are altogether different than your creatures. You are worthy of all allegiance. <clears throat> Lord, how could we ever fear man and be dictated by that fear and be nonchalant about you? <clears throat> and yet we find ourselves, I find myself in that state of mind and state of heart often. So Lord, give us a clearer vision of your holiness, just as Moses had, just as Isaiah had, just as John had. Give us a clearer vision of your holiness in the person and work of Jesus Christ give you just a moment there of quiet thoughtfulness in your own seats and then we'll respond to